0: That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea?
1: Well, they're going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works.
0: I moved over here and immediately... I had to up my game.
1: I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and learn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here.
2: I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was
1: some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs.
2: Never has a
1: nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind High in the red, white, and blue.
2: Our family is very Irish, you
1: know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Jarliff Regan? Hello, and welcome to another episode of An Irish Man Abroad with me, Jarliff Regan. This is a bit of a special one, it has to be said. My guest today is Alex MacDonald, the creator and kind of ideas man behind the Ashling project. A project that was founded 28 years ago in Camden, North London. which aims to help vulnerable Irish people living across the capital to reconnect with their homeland by hosting five supported trips to different counties in Ireland over the course of each year. And as you'll hear from talking to Alex here, there's an awful lot to this. There's an awful lot that we don't see, that we forget about in terms of the generations of Irish people that moved to London and lost touch with home. Alex explains it better than anyone, so I'll let him explain how this can happen and how the different stories of the people that he encountered at Arlington House, the now famous hostel where so many homeless Irish people have stayed over the years. That was those stories that brought about the creation of the Ashling project. Uh, Today, They have survived the last two years and continue to support those vulnerable people who have slipped through the cracks. Because immigration, when we hear about it now, is all about the victories and how well the Irish are doing in London and across the world. But that's not always the case and there is other sides to that story. The Ashling Project recognises that and aims to help those people, as I said, reconnect with home when many of them are too afraid or ashamed to do so. They uh, encounter all sorts of difficulties and problems uh, when they're here in London. Many wind up living on the street. And Alex MacDonald and his team of incredible volunteers have made it their business to get these people the help they need. Now, one of the volunteers is, of course, their patron, Ardell O'Hanlon. Now, in the middle of this episode, we'll have a quick chat with him about... What he's seen over the years with the Ashling Project, the dramatic impact that the work has had on these people, the trips home, Ardle's place in those, and the fundraising that he's done through his comedy benefit each year for the Ashling Project. But I'll get out of the way now and in- introduce you to the man behind it all, Alex MacDonald. Alex MacDonald, thank you so much for coming on The Irishman Abroad for this special episode for the Ashling Project. It's obviously 28 years last month that the whole thing started with you and John Glynn. When did you become aware of the people you set the Ashling Project up for? Like, when did they first come into your field of experience?
2: Well, I was working in the GLC for a couple of years before abolition, that was in '84 through to '86. And uh, then we got, I don't know, people, it's a long time ago now, and a lot of people might not know that whole story about that either, but that was, I don't want to go into it too much, but I suppose, but I was a community development worker there, and we were aware of um, a lot of disadvantage within the Irish community, and we were trying, and I was at the what they called the ethnic minorities unit, which mm. was the first group that, um, or sort of uh, body that the GRZ was that recognised the Irish in that sort of category Um there was a bit of resistance in the Irish community who thought that that was for other people who were and uh, they didn't see it was necessarily a respectable thing to be an ethnic minority but what it did was was unlock sort certain resources you know so um, like we'd be able to get council funding for different community projects and um, cultural events and things like that which and there was a bit of a renaissance in London through that. With a lot of it, a lot of it was thanks to the GLC's recognition, really. But we're also aware of massive amount of disadvantage. I guess you know, um, a lot of the older Irish people hadn't um, prospered. they and most of them were involved in heavy physical labour. They were not able to um, continue with that forever, obviously. You know, and in the forties they got too old for that kind of stuff. And so they were, had a very premature retirement, if you like. You know, they were, no one really wanted them when they were going out to get picked up for work. So that would be the people who came over in the 50s, the fourth generation, I guess. But then around eighty four we found that there was a massive youth emigration from Ireland. You know, Ireland sort of economically hit the skates at that time. And there was a massive, a whole, a whole generation started on the move again a lot of them went to other parts of the world this time. But an awful lot ended up here in London, and it was a big problem. A lot of them found themselves falling into exactly the same sort of uh, lifestyles as the uh, the earlier generations. I mean, it was kind of portrayed very differently. They were portrayed as graduates, really. But I mean, for every graduate, there was probably about nine or ten laborers, really, or people that didn't. Ex necessarily set out for that purpose, but I ended up in that kind of work. And there was plenty of people willing to take them on as well, you know. And uh, as usual, there was there was plenty of Irish subcontractors, uh, Irish pro boners Irish uh, landlords, just as willing to uh, give them cheap and uh, pretty rough accommodation. So the, a lot of them, an awful lot of them, ended up in exactly the same situation as previous generations. Now, when I got to, GLC was abolished in 1986. I'd done various jobs. And then I I saw this program on the TV, and it was on the Channel 4 series about homelessness. And it was called, What Do You Want Paradise? And it was a fly on the wall in Arlington House. And uh, that was my, we'd heard of Arlington House when I was at the GLC. We were kind of aware of it, but I never visited it. Uh, this, might, this was my first experience of it, and it was amazing. It was quite an amazing place. And then, um, amazingly, a couple of, couple of uh, months later, there was a job turned up for an Irish community worker in Arlington House. So I applied for it and got the job. There's not a lot can prepare you for the experience of walking into the hostel. At that time, it was um, the noise was incredible. Um, that didn't come across in the documentary quite as much. <laughs> I came in for my interview and there was a guy standing at reception with his trousers around his ankles shouting at the receptionist demanding money. And uh, so that was my first introduction. But my curiosity was massively piqued anyway. And I thought, what what can I do when I get in this place? So it turned out they were quite willing to let me do whatever I wanted, really. So I became very, very clear that, well, there there, there was more than half the population were Irish. There was 450 people, and about 250 were Irish, and the rest came from mostly British, Scottish people from all around the country. Really, uh, quite a few Africans at that time as well. There'd been a load of people let go from the long-term mental health institutions. Hmm. The local one, Free and Barnet was one of the be- one of the biggest in the country, and they just the Tory government at that time kept in this um, idea of um care in the community. But released and closed institutions which in, you know, and lots of didn't suit the people who were there, they were just dumped there. But a lot of others couldn't really survive in the community, particularly when there was no care available. What they really didn't do was what they didn't do was uh, they didn't provide any services in the community before they released all these people, thinking that they just wanted to back home. Well, a lot of them didn't have any home or the people at home didn't want them. So we, we found ourselves in the hostel with uh, loads and loads of people who had serious mental illness as well. So it was quite a mixed bag. But as I say, a lot of them were just Irish people who uh, had been labourers, were no longer able to work and uh, ended up in this hostel.
1: Now, when,
2: <laughs> when you say... Um...
1: When you describe these people and Arlington House, such a historic place, like, give us an idea of uh, some of the people that would have passed through this place, which is obviously around, you know, since 1906. It's seen some very famous people come through the doors over over that time. But it does sound like absolute chaos when you walk in. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. When it was when it was first set up, in, uh as you say, 1906, it was it was a uh, built by Lord Rowton, who was a businessman, and uh, he saw, but also a philanthropist in the sense that he saw um, a need for uh, cheap housing for casual workers, labourers, people working in uh, big hotels, things like that, and it would be. It, it would be from nine o'clock till nine in the morning. They had a bed. That, that's basically it. And when it was built, there was 1,400 rooms in the place, tiny little rooms. And it was run, you know, as 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 you can imagine, seeing Dickensian tales. It was run in that sort of level, really, kind of with an iron fist. Um, ex-army people kind of were in control, generally, and they wouldn't take any shit. You know, they were. Hmm. If you weren't in at nine o'clock, you that was it. If you came in drunk, that was it. You weren't. You wouldn't get your room. If you caused any trouble, if you pissed the bed, you got fined half a crown or something. So, you know, it was it, it, there was there wasn't a lot of caring going on, but it was useful in the sense that people at least had somewhere to live or to stay, on a, albeit on a casual basis. And as you say, yeah, can you imagine the amount of people that went through there. I mean, there was fourteen hundred rooms. I mean that could change every night. Nearly, be different people. People that I know were there was, well, certainly George Orwell, because he wrote about it. Um, it would interest a lot of. He wrote about it in Dunedin, in Paris, and London. He named the place. Um, also, Patrick Kavanagh lived in it. The Irish poet from Monaghan. He was. Um, he wrote about it in his book *The Green Fool*. Has some lovely passages of poetry about Oleg uh, House. About, I can't remember exactly, but it said something like: he felt like um, <clears throat> the soft voices from the west of Ireland falling on his head like gentle rain. And um, he's, he's he, I think he's realistic about what it was like, but also there's a certain amount of um, nostalgia, I guess. And, mm. uh, and, but it was also home to a lot of political people. And my favorite of all is Ho Chi Minh, was the, uh, the leader of the leader of the Vietnam Communist Party, who fought the Americans to a standstill in the 1950s and 60s, <laughs> and also the French colonial forces as well. I mean, what a guy.
1: Well, let me, let me ask you, Alex, because in the midst of all the chaos, you and people probably pick this up from hearing the way you speak and your manner. You obviously, in the midst of all of this kind a of whirlwind of activity and, as you say, uh, mental suffering, were able to have moments with the Irish people there who, as you say, couldn't f- find work, had come to England in the hope of something better. And you were able to establish in those moments, were you not, that there's all these stories of shame and these people that felt they couldn't go home. Can you tell us a little bit about finding those moments and getting people to open up to you and win their trust in that way?
2: Yeah, very, very difficult to do. I mean, inst- instantly, because you're somebody in a sort of authority, you're going to get people are going to be suspicious of you, you know. But the kind of way to win them over was to, was to, um, I don't know, I brought things in. There was a, there was a newspaper vendor on, used to have a uh, store on the bottom of Parkway there at the time called Martin Lavelle, and he, he, had, uh, he had all the provincial newspapers from Ireland, and he'd sell them there. And <laughs> he, it, on a Friday evening, he'd get his new delivery, and, um, and I'd pop over, and uh, he'd give me the old ones that, it, uh, that hadn't been sold, and all he sent back was the, uh, the headline, the cuttings of the leader, of the, uh, the newspaper, the Connacht Tribune, or the, you know, the um, the Cork Examiner or whatever. But I think there was a couple of dozen provincial newspapers. So I used to bring them back to Wellington House and I'd hand them out to all the people from those different counties and they'd pass them around, you know. That was one thing. Um, I used to put on little events. I so used to get music. There was a group of musicians around Camden who were happy to play there. And they'd come in and they'd, we'd have little in the, uh, the games room. You know, that was one way of getting to people. But also getting to know people, spending time with, them, talking with them. There was another, there's, 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 there's kind of another um, thread to it as well. And that was around this time, when people were getting to this age where they, their economic life was over, in a sense, because they couldn't work physically anymore. Um, they were all uh, generally paid in the pub. They were expected to stay in the pub. They were socialized into alcohol use. I'm not saying all of them, but Mm. an awful lot of them. And a lot of the stereotypes of Irish drunkenness is about emigration, really. And um, it's the same in America, too. And this is a sort of because the socialization around alcohol. That's where you, you met people in pubs. Nearly all the pubs in Camden were Irish, and a lot of them still are. They were. it's one of the few places where all the pubs are actually owned by individual people and families, and that's still the case. And at that time, all the pubs, they were, you'd already be, there were Irish running, they were full of Irish people, there was Irish music in it, in them. I mean, I know people from the north of Ireland came to Camden and heard rebel music pounding out from these pubs, and they couldn't believe it. You know, you'd get shot if that was going on. Well, in fact, they did, but so there were certain push factors like that as well. It was economic, but there was also political at that time. A lot of people came in the 80s because they were fleeing so, political violence. Because mm. a lot of people didn't care. A lot of people were already damaged. So yeah, there was a lot of social problems ending up on the British shores, really, and particularly in London. In a massive place like that, a lot of people it suited them because they wanted to get lost, really. And and some Fences that were hiding away. But the alcohol was a huge problem. Around that time as well, these would be pub drinkers. They'd be drinking pubs. They couldn't afford to drink in pubs anymore. So what they'd be doing is drinking cans of alcohol, cans of beer. And at that time came on the market in the mid-'80s, this thing called the super-strength beer, which was lager, which was the – some of them were produced by – the Skull had one. Tenants was the most notorious one. Um, it had nearly 10% alcohol in it. And so people started drinking these because you get a cheap hit. And it was one way of getting drunk without having to spend a lot of money. And when you were living, surviving on benefits, that was all you could do. But these things had a massive addictive quality. And they certainly hit you with a big wallet. And there's a lot of people who suffered kind of mental, mental illness from it. So these things all happened at once. And at that time, there was massive homelessness in London. Uh, the Simon Community and Shelter both said that um, the Irish were the majority of people on the streets in the mid 90s, uh, mid 80s to mid 90s. There was cardboard cities that were kind of notorious around Waterloo uh, and the underground bypasses there. There was people sleeping rough at the back of the um, at the back of the Savoy Hotel. There was people sleeping on, in Lincoln's Inn fields where all the, uh, the lawyers operated. There was these huge big shanty towns, and they started moving them out big time and started getting rough with them. Arlington House at that time changed its policy from, like every other hostel in London, yeah, you, it, was, it was standard not to uh, tolerate any kind of alcohol. But Arlington House recognized that these people aren't going to come off the streets unless they're allowed to drink. So it became the first wet hostel. So that was another factor that increased the amount of Irish people there. So all these things came together around about that time, and uh, and it, it made for a very very interesting mix, but also very chaotic.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean your your role then in learning the stories of these people, getting a sense of how they found themselves there, and you know the way you describe them being paid in the pub and the kind of you know cultural societal trap that they were landed into where you kind of couldn't get work without going to the pub and then you couldn't escape the pub with your wages or i guess you'd be viewed you know with a social stigma attached to you that you wouldn't buy your round, or or what and like in those days i'd imagine that that was you know uh was as bad as having a you know a a red X on your back in, <laughs> some, in some ways. It's uh, extraordinary to hear you describe it. And it'd be so, it's just so recent. It's such recent history. It sounds like another era, but it's so, so recent. When do you sit down with one of these people and the germ of the idea for the Ashling project when does that start to grow in you because I understand that when you tried to explain to them that you know maybe going back that there's people there that would want to see you that a lot of these guys just simply wouldn't believe it
2: yeah they 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 thought they'd been gone too long they'd be forgotten about they were ashamed that they hadn't sent money back for years because how could you you know they could when they were working and loads of them did in fact most of them did send money back the amount of remittances that I mean, only, they can only make bare estimates because most of it was sent back as cash. We don't know how many of that was <laughs> hijacked <laughs> on the way by the many hands that went through it and fell. Oh yeah, going a while in very, very thick packed here. But the amount of stuff that ended up it, that arrived there was a lot more than uh, than. I mean, it kept families going, and it and it really did. It was it was a life a lifesaver. And these people were going out in order to save their families back home. And that was expected of them and they complied with it and uh, they'd, they'd they'd send money back. I mean there's only the only estimates really can be made about once it was sent back as post postal orders and things like that, or checks. And most people didn't do that, they just sent cash. But there's but a huge amount, I mean it's not really recognized. I mean, it certainly has been recognised, but I don't think it's fully realised um, the amount of um, the amount of support, welfare support that the people did themselves, their whole back to their families, hmm. and but, but also, can you imagine the, sh- the, the sheer shame of it when you couldn't do it anymore, yeah, and you felt yeah. you had let them down, and your wages, you didn't have any wages anymore. All you had was ba- basic um, welfare payments. And because at that stage, you were so addicted to alcohol you couldn't even afford that however there was there was there was one guy in particular this would give you an idea this guy called barney and he 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 lived on what, what we call the care wing because they were uh, people who were severely ill from um, whatever you know different different problems, but a lot of them were alcoholics and uh, and Barney used to drink the most amazing concoctions he'd He'd, uh, he'd have a, a cooking pot, and he'd put in a bottle of sherry, a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of gin, two cans of super strength, and, you know, whatever you have in yourself, into this pot, mix it up, and you'd he'd, he'd have a little cup, and you'd dip into that and drink it. Oh, my, God. Oh my and, God. That was like a massive suicide binge, but a long, slow one. Oh, my God. So he'd do that for three months, and then he'd, and then he'd sober up. And he'd, he wouldn't want any help. He'd just lock himself in his room. He'd call cold turkey. He'd sweat and he'd shake for a couple of weeks. And then he'd come out. And, and then he'd be the most respectable guy he ever saw. His clothes would be spotless. They'd be, be pressed. And he'd walk out with his head in the air. And he'd, he'd be tutting at the other drunks. <laughs> and he'd save up he'd save up a, couple of, a few hundred quid. And then he'd send that back to his family and then he'd go back on that binge again after three months sobriety, you know but we eventually got Barney back on one of the trips this, this is an amazing story and he was really nervous, we went up to the family home um, the family home was like so many in Ireland now, it was just dilapidated and there was a brand new self-walk ranch style house built next door to it there was a couple of cars in the drive and that was his sister's house and the mother had died and so the sister was amazed to see Barney. She welcomed him back and said, passed over a, a a savings book and said, that's all the money you've been sending for the last few years. We've been saving it up because we've got enough now. We didn't need your money for the last few years, but you've kept us going for the years before that. Wow. And he had 26 grand. Wow. Yeah.
1: I mean, it is indicative as well, isn't it, of how different the world they were
2: they envisioned
1: uh, yeah. versus the yes. one that was there uh, he saw his
2: mother's little cottage there and they thought she was sitting by the fire and mm. he, his his memory hadn't moved forward really you know
1: so yeah I'm going to jump in here and we're going to bring Ardle into the chat and then we'll return to Alex uh, but what an extraordinary man he truly is Ardle O'Hanlon of course you'll know as an icon of Irish entertainment and when he moved to London in 1994, that introduction with Alex took place. And I'll let Ardle uh, take up the story as to how his fundraising efforts for the project began right there. Ardle O'Hanlon, thank you so much for jumping on this uh, Ashland Project episode. Now, we've just spoken to Alex MacDonald, and I think anybody that will have listened to that conversation will understand how special the man is, never mind the project for a moment. He's a very special individual uh, in his manner and way of speaking. And you can totally understand how this thing came about as a result of him and that gentleness that comes with him. What was your first meeting like with him? He told us that he was introduced to you. What was that like and when did you know I have to be involved here?
0: Well, I moved to London in 1994 and I think it was probably that year or maybe the year afterwards that Alex approached me about being part of a comedy bill to raise money for the Ashling project. And Alex, as you know, has a lovely, understated, very humble Mm. way about him, but he gets things done. He insinuates his way into your (laughs) company and your confidence. And I was very attracted to the project anyway, because, you know, I was always very aware, as I'm sure you were, as an Irish comedian going to London, in the nineties or in the two thousands and the noughties, like we we were part of a privileged generation, mm. you know, where where the Irish were very welcome in Britain generally, you know, there was a, there was a very highly educated, highly motivated, highly mobile cohort of Irish people going to London and working in the media and working in business and Irish culture was very fashionable. Uh, you had shows like Father Ted, you had shows like Bally Angel on TV, uh, you had great bands like U2, you had The Cars, you had Boyzone, <laughs> you had Bewitched. even <laughs> All the greats. So, uh, yeah, all the greats. But you also had the indie stuff. You had Neil Hannon, Divine Comedy, Cal Coughlin. You know, you had great Irish comedians. Sean Hughes had just won the Perrier. Graham Norton was beginning his stellar career. Uh, so it was a great time to be Irish in London. And But I was always very conscious when I was there that there were an awful lot of people left behind. And there were the previous generations of Irish people who had gone over before and some of them had fallen through the cracks and you couldn't but notice mm. Irish homeless people on the streets of London and in doorways. And so, you know, that 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 always sat slightly uneasily with me. And, and um, so when Alex came along and asked me to get involved, like I jumped at it, I have to say, because, you know, I was looking for something like that, um, you know, that dimension. Yeah in my life, I suppose, because I, I, I'm i not the most proactive or dynamic person in the world and I wouldn't know where to start with something like that. So it was great that Alex approached me and then I got involved in organising these annual comedy shindigs to raise money for the project. And through that, I got to see Alex's work up closely and um, to meet a lot of the people that Alex helps. Mm-hmm. I mean, he
1: uh, explained it so well in our conversation about exactly who these people are and how easily it happens and how the situations are all different, but how much shame there was involved in them not going back and how the holiday in some ways is the is the perfect, the perfect antidote to that, because yeah. it lets them kind of have a look, have a peek without having to, you know, really uproot themselves and say, well, no, I'm going to go back and perhaps go back and face into things. Like, How did he sell that to you? How did he explain that to you in the way that made you jump at it?
0: Well, I suppose like he introduced me to some of the people involved. I mean, there was a great bloke called Joe McGarry who had been homeless and he was now working with homeless people. And so I met him very early on. And he he told me his story, and it was it was a it, you know it was a very powerful story. And then I visited Arlington House, where where a lot of these um, it was mainly men at that time in in the in the very early in the very early days, you know, told me their stories. And I I suppose the stories are just so powerful. Each of these person is an individual. You come with certain assumptions, I think, about hmm. homelessness and about people who've fallen through the cracks, the very wide cracks that that are there yeah. in society. And you can see how it happens. You know, um, uh, Alex could explain it far better than I could. You know, the lifestyle and the lifestyle choices, you know, the, you know, there were choices in some cases uh, with some of these individuals, but their stories are all different. And there's usually some underlying thing as well. So it's not as simple as, you know, the good times ended or, you know, the Mm -hmm. building boom finished or whatever. You know, there's usually some, Something else there in the background, maybe something that relates to their family life or their upbringing or some trauma in their lives. So, you know, you can't make assumptions. I mean, you know, having met the people over the years, it's it's incredible the number of like non-drinkers there were amongst really? the various groups I met. Yeah, like that, like that. That was a huge surprise to me because you know, I like everyone else. I you know, I make these assumptions about people. And like there was one man I met uh, on a few occasions over the years. Absolutely lovely fellow. I won't mention his name. But he had grown up in an institution, one of the the notorious mother and child facilities in Ireland. And he had been treated uh, appallingly uh, throughout his childhood. And at the age of 14, he ran away on his own. The guy was illiterate, uh, still is, and um, ran away to England. And I don't know, you know, quite what he did over the years. Uh, He would have worked menial jobs in England, but never drank in his life, never touched a drop, you know, and, uh, you know, an extraordinary fellow, but still very bitter and uh, still very traumatized by, Mm. you know, by his by his story. So, you know, that's not his fault that he ended up on the streets of London or living in hostels. And, you know, people, people like Alex and his unbelievably dedicated team of volunteers. You know, they they find people like this man and uh, they help him get the resources that he needs and the treatments that he needs. And, uh, uh, you know, they help him live a life of dignity.
1: Well, you've done an incredible amount of fundraising, Ardle, and I know you don't um, you don't go around advertising it, but the comedy gigs that you mentioned when I go back through and I do a bit of a search in places like the Irish Post or just a general search, even through Alex's blog, you realise how many years are stacked on stacked here, um, then faces and names that have come through the doors to do these events Um it's incredible. It, it, it really is. I mean, give people an idea of exactly who has done these shows and how many you've done. Yeah. And, and well, maybe I, I then mean, I'll ask you about how much maybe has been raised.
0: Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, I do very little. Alex literally does everything. I mean, he is an extraordinary man, extraordinarily selfless. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing, just be, just before I, I go into the, the roll call of luminaries who've graced the stage of the of the annual Ashling Comedy gig, you know, one of the th- great things about this charity is that it is so low-key and so low-profile, which mm. kind of reflects Alex's personality to some degree. Like, you know, we all applaud the work that the the big glitzy uh high profile international charities do but as you know you know they they, they also attract or, or they spend an awful lot of their of the funds that they raise on salaries and on publicity and advertising materials you know you get these glossy brochures through the posts and everything and with with the ashling project like every penny raised you can see exactly where it goes mm. and i think that's part of the attraction for me it's part of the beauty of it it's 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 on a very manageable scale and anyway so i do very little alex does everything and uh he asked me every year you know and and, and you and, and you've come on board as well jared in the last couple of years in terms of helping to um to get com- get comedians to come along and do it and everyone does it willingly and and, and yeah. you know enthusiastically which is just great but over the years like we've had literally with certainly every Irish comedian that you could think of from Dylan Moore and Darrow Breen, Ed Byrne, Dave O'Doherty, Tommy Tiernan. Um, Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr. Yeah. Uh, Graham Norton uh, did it one year. Uh, and great English comedians, Lee Mack, Milton Jones has done it over the years. Uh, Joe Wilkinson came last year, which was amazing. I mean, Ashling B has done it. It's nearly uh, easier to think of the ones that haven't. I know. Yeah, <laughs> you you can't even think of those. yeah no, and it's been great, you know. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I feel bad every year for asking people uh, to do it. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I shouldn't because, you know, I think everyone, I mean, certainly for Irish people, for any Irish person, comedian or otherwise, I mean, I think this subject really does touch their heart. Yeah. Uh, y- y- you know, it's... Um, it's something we're, we've all been very, very aware of. I don't think there's a family in Ireland that isn't touched by this issue in some way.
1: Mm. I know exactly what you're talking about in that when you ask people and when I've asked people, there's never a question of, "Oh, well, what, what the hell is this charity <laughs> there, which does happen, uh, you know, when you're being asked all the time to do these things, you have to be careful of what you're saying yes to. But there's no question that, you know, as you say, the spirit is in the right place with this and this is something that is so visible. And uh, I'm sure in the 90s was even more visible to hear the Irish accents calling out to you. You got to see one of the trips firsthand. Did you not?
0: Yeah. Did- well, I mean, you know, in, in my capacity as patron, um I have been very privileged to, you know, to spend time in Arlington House in Camden, which I'm sure Alex described it mm. it's a, it's a, it's one of these uh, old Victorian institutions uh, and up to recent years what would have been predominantly Irish I mean I think the focus has changed over the years but certainly when I started when I got involved first in the 1990s it was it was still largely you know populated by Irish people so every year maybe three or four times a year pre-pandemic at least Alex and his team would bring over a group of uh, homeless men and women Uh, to Ireland and to try to reconnect them with their families. So, you know, you might have anything from 10 to 20 people on board, men and women. And one of the big one of the big objectives of the fundraising campaign in in, in recent years was to actually buy their own minibus, which was Mm. which was brilliant. (laughs) Uh, That was a big day when 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 they finally got possession of the bus. And Alex himself would drive the bus with John and they would come over and then some generous benefactor in Ireland would generally provide the accommodation. It would, it would usually be kind of holiday accommodation off season. And I would usually go and visit them wherever they were in the country. Uh, and then on St. Patrick's Day, they always, they always had a trip around St. Patrick's Day and they, they would bring the group to the St. Patrick's Day parade. And then traditionally they would come to my house afterwards for dinner and music and so on. And I would ask sort of, Trad musicians to come around and play, and 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 they would. They'd give up their own St. Patrick's Day and come around. My local butcher would <laughs> provide meat. Uh, neighbors and friends would come around and you know help with the catering, and my wife would do a great job making sure everyone was well fed. And um, it was a great day, and you know, like like to meet these people up close. So you would hear their stories, their individual stories, and. There was one year in particular um where we had a great group and, and and like i mean just to just to describe the scene a little further charlotte you yeah. know you would have all types there you know you know you'd have the chronically shy you would have you know people who had deteriorated greatly you would have garrulous people you'd have very messy drunken people you know you would have bitter angry people uh you would have you know shy gentle people so you, you know you had mm. the whole the Candy. range of, of, <laughs> yeah. of human experience represented there. And, you know, they might be very shy at first, but as the day would progress, you know, people would start opening up a little and, and, and sharing their stories. You'd never ask them. Like, I mean, you know, we, we weren't there as voyeurs. You know, you're mm. just there to help, help the day, you know, help them have a good day. But, you know, you know, a lot of them would volunteer their stories. But anyway, there was one very, one year, there was one very um, shy man who was sort of on his own in the kitchen. He was hanging about, and he was pacing up and down and he you know he was dapper he was in a three-piece suit uh he had you know a tuft of hair on each side of his head he didn't have the full set of teeth and my wife kind of approached him and said are you all right there and and what's your name and whatever so he told her the name and again i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say the name let's just call him johnny and um he said uh johnny you know johnny is his name and she said oh johnny and how are you and where are you from so he mentioned the town in the midlands where he was from and uh my wife Melanie said, Oh, you know, I, I have um I have an aunt who lives in that town, maybe you know her. So she mentioned uh she mentioned the, the relative's name and uh Johnny said, Uh that's my sister. <sighs> so here in our kitchen was this man who had been missing for 10, 20 years. Uh nobody knew where he was. Uh and here he was in our kitchen. Uh, the family had been on Irish radio over the years. Uh, looking for this man wondering they knew he he was in England, and uh here he was, and sh- you know I just heard this shriek from the kitchen <laughs> yeah. I mean she shrieks a lot, but this was a, <laughs> this was an exceptional exceptional shriek and um, <laughs> you know i went in we went in to see what was going on, and uh she was crying and um this this poor guy was sort of uh you know he kind he like we we discovered later that he did know where he was, he knew that Melanie was related to him. I'm not quite sure how, how he did. And her first instinct was to call some of the family and say, look, I found him. You know, Johnny is here. He's in our house. And Alex sort of said, no, you know, you know that's really up to him. You you can't, you know, you can't get involved if, if, if he wants to meet his family. That's one thing. But, you know, and he said he did and everything else. And he said he'd call them and all. I don't know if he ever did or anything. But wow. I think, you know, I think the family were really, really grateful that they now knew where he was and that he was okay and above all that alex and the ashling project were looking out for him yeah you know so so that in itself was a fantastic result and that was that was that was for me that was just reinforcing the rightness of the project you know what i mean it was like it was like bringing it all home do you know like the here 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 was a, a personal connection to this uh, if one was needed, you know, it was um, it was just seeing the incredibly valuable work that the Ashling Project actually does uh, at first hand. Uh, oh. And that so many people that Alex and his and his people find and help in this way. And just, just, just look after them and help them get them back on their feet again. I mean, Ardle, I'm so
1: pleased that you told the story. Uh, I didn't know of it before, but it is just It is the heart and soul of the thing. It is, you know, one of those beautiful moments that I'm sure Alex is so as you say, he's so humble and private that he could he could have told us a few more, but uh, he didn't. And I am so delighted that we got that from you so that people can see the kind of full articulation of what this work is and what this project does. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're not in the best today. So thank you so much for doing it. And uh, I'm sure I'll see you face to face for a pint soon. Cheers, Jarlene. No problem. Pleasure. So now we'll pop back to Alex to let him complete this story. And uh, as I said, if you want to support the Ashling Project, it's really easy to do so. All you need to do is go to ashling.org dot uk and see the options that are available to you there how did the wheels get turning because again people that are listening might know of the ashling project might have attended one of the huge gala comedy concerts that you've put on with the help of Ardlo hanlon and every other comedian in london with a drop of irish blood in them Um, but they might not know About, you know, the small beginnings and how literally you said, if you don't believe me about the world (laughs) that's waiting for you back there, well, get in the van and I'll show you.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that kind of it kind of started with a conversation with uh, John Glenn and Deirdre Robinson. And Coincidentally, it was one of the events that we used to run at the GLC, the Irish Book Fair, and uh, I was involved in that from that its inception. So I was kind of still helping organize that. And it was at the London Irish Centre and uh, it was a big literary occasion. And I met Deirdre and John who were working at the Irish Centre and um, they said, we started talking about this and they said, it's exactly the same thing. All the pe- all the clients they knew, and there'd be people in flats around the place and wouldn't necessarily be homeless. But, um, they still, they're the same. It's, they, 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 they. It's a syndrome. They're hiding away. They're full of shame. They're full of, you know, misplaced pride about them, about how they're perceived, and, and fear that people would look down on them. or feel that they've failed, mm-hmm. and this is an awful thing, and it's a terrible thing to get over. And we, we thought the only thing to do was just as you know, as you said, is to put them in a the van and take them back and see what we can do and just confront them with the reality of modern Ireland. And the fact that in most cases, they're they're welcome back with open arms and people have been wondering where they've been and whatever happened to them. And that's probably true of nearly every family in Ireland. And uh, so we thought, how are we going to do it, though? (laughs) Well, it took a lot of persuasion, basically, you know, and we had to hijack a lot of people who were already drunk and didn't know what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, you wouldn't do it now. We couldn't do it now. You know, we have to have protocols in place now. But at that time, we were thought we've just got to find somewhere of getting a few people back and breaking the ice. You
1: know.
2: Yeah. So we did, and the first couple of trips were, well, the first one. So uh, we went back to Kerry, and there was a group there. They kind of called the Kerry Emigrant Group that helped people. And that kind of way, and they found us some accommodation, and uh, so we arrived there with three minibuses, so about 30 people, and uh, so many community workers among us, three for each van, I think, and um, and we settled in this place, and it was it was a it was a revelation. Uh, one one thing that exemplifies it was on the way over, we went sort of southern route, and we went we were going through Waterford, and at that time before they built the cat flap, you had to go through the city. And it was in the middle of the night. <laughs> we arrived over on the night ferry, and it was, it was pitch dark, and we were driving through Waterford. And and I was thought, Eddie's from Waterford. And I looked back, and he, and he had his head down. He had his coat over his head, and he was terrified anybody would see his face driving through Waterford <laughs> after being away for 20-odd years or something. And um, so we got a carry. We had our week. We were coming back, and Eddie said, can we leave a bit early? I'd like to spend an hour in Waterford. That was the difference. Wow, that one week, that one week made a made a profound difference to him. And then he got in touch with his sister, and he, he made regular trips back on his own. There was a guy called Jerry. He was from Kerry itself, and uh, he we were one day we went for a visit. We went into Killarney. And we were just walking around, and um, we turned this corner, and Jerry bumped into his sister. It was a visit, and she was actually. They were from Valencia Island and uh, she had a son with her and uh, he was, uh, apparently she brought him into Killarney to buy a pair of shoes to go back to school with. And she probably hadn't been in Killarney from one year to the next. But out of sheer luck, she bumped into her brother, Jerry, and he hadn't been back. Jerry being a teacher, his father being a teacher, his family were all teachers, but then, they drink got the better of him, he ended up in London you know, and um they hadn't seen him since, so they hadn't they didn't have a clue about where he was or what was going on
1: i mean she must have she must have been like she'd seen a ghost,
2: she was shocked you know screamed the last time and uh and the little son was the son was there was, you know he's he's about eleven or twelve and he's going, "Who's this man? Is that my uncle garode <laughs> and anyway the um that evening, this whole family turned up to the place where we were staying, and, uh, and he kept in touch for years. He he actually he was actually sober. He he, he got sober when he got back. I mean, it didn't last. It lasted a year and a half, which is a phenomenal amount of time, really, considering he was living in Ireland. But,
1: I mean, and then we made you
2: know. trips back. We'd always we'd bring him back with us a few times. Then he'd get in touch with his family. The family would come up and see him. He stays sober for a few months and that that was how it went. But I mean, what a, what a gift to him in his later yeah. years. And it must make it really
1: obvious then to you that we're on to something here. This is worthwhile and this needs more. It needs more time. It needs more effort. It needs more funding. You must have returned with, you know, all the vim and vigour and the wind in your sails. But as you say, like, money is the key. To a lot of yeah. these things and these endeavours. I'd imagine that getting Ardelo O'Hanlon on board was was big as a patron, oh. particularly when at that moment in time he was probably the, the biggest Irish comedian in in England.
2: Yeah, well he was certainly in the biggest show. He was in Father Ted, which was, you know, just being Ed around about that time it was being launched, I think. And um it was, and actually, I'd been introduced to him by Martin Doyle, who was he was the editor of the Irish Post at the time, and um, and he's now the literary editor at the Irish Times. But at the time, he was all involved in the Irish community, and he used to sort of like what we were doing, you know. So he tried to publicise what we were up to, and uh, he was he was invited onto one of the episodes <laughs> of Father Ted. I think it was the one where they lost him. The last in the laundry. Department. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of the priests, Father Doyle, and uh, so he got he got to know and he was telling him about us, and sort of Ardle said he'd like to to meet us. So we did. You know, we met up with him, and that's when we got the idea for having the big, coffee cakes, and which have kept us going to a great extent. You know, another thing that's kept us going was um, local publicans around Camden. And as I said, they were all mostly Irish and. They, uh, they had a an association called the Silla, uh, which is the Camden, uh, oh sorry, uh, Camden and Islington Licensees Association, and they were. Um, I got to know a few of the landlords. You know, most of them are decent people. You know, uh, mm. and one of them in particular is an extraordinary bloke from from Donegal called Pat Logue, and uh, he he was managing a pub called the Oxford Arms. And he's now has his own pub, the Sheephaven Bay, which is a great pub in camp. But, um, when he was in the Oxford, I was chatting to him sitting at the bar and I think, well, I think John was with me actually. And, uh, we were just talking about, uh, Arlington House and stuff. Cause a lot of the lads used to go into the Oxford and some of them were so disruptive we you'd have to chuck them out, like, but I mean, plenty of them would just sit at the bar and have a drink. <laughs> when they got up, maybe on pay a day, they'd probably do it, you know, and, um, but he he was so we were telling him what we were going to do, we we're planning to get this trip together, and he's going, "Well, what are you going to do for money?" And we says, "Well, we don't really know we got we had a land of a minibus uh, from one of the contractors, and we need to get a and we'd we'll probably be able to get a couple of more of them. you know we'd beg borrow and get what we could, but we're going to need a couple of grand and he and he says, "Well, leave that to me and I says what you mean he says Sir. he says well we we're about to get a uh, a laid license in the pub. and I'm, so, I'm sure people will pay a pound to stay after 11 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so, so after 11 o'clock, you couldn't get in the Oxford Arms without paying a pound. And yeah, it's amazing how that mounted up. Wow. Uh, yeah. And in a few months, we had the money we needed. So, you know, we've had really good friends. We've been really lucky. Communities are pulled together. They're sort of the vast Irish comedy community got together, including yourself, Charles,
1: you no. know, so. I mean, it's 28 years a long time, though. I mean, it really. Well, Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 there, there really is um, a lot of change in that time and you've witnessed it. And I've even heard you say that when journalists get in touch, they only want to hear about the success stories
2: and
1: yeah, they, they want to know about how the Irish are taking over London. <laughs> and yeah. uh, Whereas you, that's true. you, you really do have this other side. And even my own show here, so much of my show is about how the Irish went abroad and kicked ass, you know, yeah. but there is, there is another there's side that, to uh, emigrating.
2: There is. And there's plenty came over, plenty came over and got their ass kicked, Charlotte. That's, yeah, that's the truth. And a lot of the time by their own.
1: Yes. And, you know, in so many ways, the Ashling Project, I think in the modern sense, is fulfils a role of education in some ways for people who think that those that leave Ireland just go away uh, to have this better life. And sure, they're they're nearly cowardly for not staying and gritting it out with the rest of us. But that mm-hmm. those that go away, there really is a darker side to some of the experiences, and they're not these stories aren't just located in the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties. That no. it's happening right now. Are you seeing? It's happening. Yeah. yeah.
2: We're 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 seeing. Well, um, a colleague Charlie, who works with us, she's she's worked with us for twenty years, over twenty years now, and she's. Um, She's a nurse and works part time at a, a homeless um, practice um, in the in the in the West city in West End, and uh, she sees a huge amount of uh, stuff that we don't necessarily see because at night time these people come out and they they live in tents on Tottenham Court Road, etc. And that's a whole new level of homelessness that uh, that's kind of ignored. Um, the cardboard cities were. It was so obvious and so noticeable that even Thatcher had to do something about it, or John Major, whoever it was at the time. But, um, you know, people were complaining about stepping over the homeless on the way to the opera. And, and so you had to oh, we must do something about this. Hmm. And uh, So there was a bit of an effort. But, I mean, you know, there was still considered scum on the shoe of the uh, aristocracy or the, the well-to-do. But the Irish, too, I mean, you know, as I say, the, uh, when I was at the JLC and I was trying to find out in 84 and 85 what it was that was causing emigration on such a scale and, and um, what, what could be done about it, I, I spoke to politicians in the doll and um, even Tony Gregory, who was, uh, who was in a city, and I thought, well, a lot of his lads are, are coming over his young constituency, seem you saying, they're saying, they're doing well, they're doing well. Everything we hear is that they're doing well. And I'm going, well, that's not the case. And I says, can you find out for us a bit about um, how to um, get some numbers together and find out how, no- how many are coming? So we did. He put a question in the doll, and we tried to find out. So first of all, the only, the only thing we could think of was to find out how many Irish people had applied for national insurance numbers in Britain. Now, that would give us the amount of people who were in legitimate employment, um, it wouldn't give us an idea about the sort of the black economy, you know, the whole sort of underground economy. But it was, it was. I think, I think we found out it was, it was, it was run at 50s levels anyway, hmm. even with those figures. And um, the people weren't aware of the the extent of it for a start. And then we had another idea. Why don't we? Because at that time the government. Gareth Fitzgerald's government brought in a five-pound emigration tax. So when you were leaving the island, you were you were charged a fiver at the airport or the or the ferry. And so, can we count up those fivers? Well, we did, and it was double. It turned out it was double the amount of people actually leaving that we thought was on the uh, national that had been applying for national insurance numbers. So that meant. As many people who were getting legitimate employment in Britain, half of them, that was only half of them. Wow. There, yeah. was, there was another 50,000 were uh, working on the lump. So things were pretty much as they were in the 50s.
1: And what about today, Alex? Like, Like you say, when people ask, how is it going over there? Everybody always says, well, everybody. Nobody, nobody tells (laughs) people back home where it's going. I've even had times myself where you tell people, oh, I'm so busy. And we've had dark times here where, you know, it hasn't been busy. Nothing on the scale of the people in Arlington House, of course. But I I mean, there's still people uh, living here of my generation who want to go home, but are ashamed to and are facing some some of the substance issues that you were describing just probably in relation to different substances. Yeah. How involved in the that generation and uh, that side of things are, is the Ashton project now?
2: Well, we're we're, we're still and most of our uh, clients are in the 80s generation probably so they'd be in their 60s now. There is as I said, Charlie, who's working for the homeless uh, nursing practice, finds a lot of Irish people who have got substance abuse issues, which carries with it even more shame than the alcohol issue, probably, and uh, may have left with that problem, has not been able to find any proper employment of any kind. All the, all the build, building industry now is super done, is meant that there's no casual labour. You have, to be, uh, you, have to have, you have to have tickets and you have to have proper, proper training before you can even get a job on a building site. So a lot of that kind of um, path to employment is gone. And a lot of the Irish people now who aren't doing well are kind of have fallen through the cracks, and they'll only be seen when they're in an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. and That's like people like Charlie. Uh, very few people. Are seeing what there's there's the passage in Victoria. They're seeing a load of young Irish in that situation coming over. All they can do is give them a ticket back and tell them there's nothing for you here. At least at home you've got contact with people. Mm. That's a situation now, really. You know, we see we see young younger people, but not 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 as many as we see of the older group. Right. They're not ready. They're not ready to come out and look for our kind of assistance. Sure, because I really feel
1: that uh, it's uh, on the way down the track because there's certainly um, there's something happening back home, especially in terms of people just bailing out. I mean, it is a cost of living thing and it's a bunch of other stuff that we don't have time to get into here, but Mm -hmm. uh, I just wonder uh, about the future of the Ashling project and, you know, who the who the elderly Irish in London will be who have lost touch with home and whether this yeah. cycle continues, do you do you see that as a, a kind of perpetual thing in some ways, just because of our connection to shame and disconnection from truth or that side of things when things don't work
2: out? I think that's I think that's always going to be a problem, John. I think it's always going to be an issue. Whether or not the kind of assistance we provide is going to be always something that people are going to want, I don't know really. As you know, I mean, as we said, the issues have uh, have changed. They're not they're not the same people. They're not they're not they're not the same problems. Things are harsher, even mm, more kind of really? visceral. People are more cynical. Um, people might be even more afraid of authority. You know, there's these. These things are I don't think they're gonna get any better, but whether or not we'll we'll adapt whichever way we can, you know, to to provide for people who need it. But I'm seeing things, yeah, as you say, there's a darker side to things. And um the kind of street homelessness, the kind and the grip that um that drug taking has had and that people fall into very, very quickly on the streets now it happens. Straight away, it doesn't really—it doesn't, you know—it's not something that develops over years, not like alcoholism did. It's um, it happens very, very quickly, and your life can go from, you know, forward to backward in no time at all. You know, you don't pass go, you don't collect hundred quid, you get straight there. It's 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 fast, and it's and it's devastating, and there's no and it's very, very hard to get back from it. There's no rehabs in London anymore. For alcohol or drugs. There many. Really? Well, there's no detox. There's rehabs, but you have to put, you know, at the cost of fortune. And if you can get the local authority to pay for it, but the local authority is oh. getting hit over and over again. The only way of getting a, a detox, so you're actually your systems free from alcohol or drugs, is to uh, go to hospital. Jesus. And, uh, Jesus. You have to, so you have to be in a real emergency situation before they can do that. And then they'll have to let you go very quickly. So, you might, you know, they're not going to give you six weeks to get free of alcohol or drugs. It might be six six days. So you're rattling when you go out. I mean, it's they've closed down all detox in London. I think there might be still one at the Elephant Castle. But, it's, you know, getting the funding is a bit of a problem. Uh, there's some outside <laughs> London, you know. We try. We, you know, we've got a few people who we still need to access those services. We do what we can to get them in, but it's getting harder and harder. There was a very. There's one called Kairos down in South London. Um, a lot of Irish people involved in running that, and they they were had extraordinary success with our kind of client group. Yeah, they lost their. They've lost their uh, detox. The CQC closed them down, and I don't think it was for what reason? Because they're closing everyone down. They can't all be not meeting the requirements.
1: Does it ever get in on top of you, Alex? Like, you must have had time across the 28 years where you thought, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. Um, or is it a case of when you go on those trips it uh, and you reunite people and see the impact that you think uh, there is suffering and there's difficulty within this, but it's all worth it when we get to have those moments?
2: It's all worth it, Charlotte. yeah, get a massive boost. You know, until two years ago, we were doing five trips a year, and it was um, so. You were getting every couple of months. You were you were taking a group over, and every time it's it, it just it's just you know massive. Uh, it's a massive boost for you and a, a boost for everybody. And concerned, you know, we all feel it. It's a it's a very special feeling, mm. and uh, so we go to different places. We have different, you know, that group. Kai I was telling you about the detox, place, and rehab. We used to do a joint trip with them every year. We'd take a group of our lads who were sober and a group of their lads who'd come out and rehab. And it was extraordinary. It was absolutely amazing, you know. You just feel people blossoming again. Yeah. of your eyes. Yeah. It's quite amazing. I can't imagine...
1: I can imagine, because honestly, if I could say this to the listeners, that the buzz that I get from just being part and knowing on a second hand level that this is taking place and to be connected to that, uh, what it does for my heart <laughs> to even do the gigs and do the yes. auction at Windsor racetrack uh, when you do your race night is immense. Like what it you, you get so much from giving a little, I would urge people to do that uh, this week if they have a couple of extra quid. And I know that money is tight. You can imagine how tricky it is for the Ashling Project, especially as we didn't get to put on our comedy night. Uh, this year and yeah. all sorts of plans for it. And uh yeah. COVID jumped in the way of that one. It didn't stop me getting to Windsor racetrack. I have to say, Alex, yeah. it is the most <laughs> is the most fun I've ever had doing an auction. I get asked to do these auctions all the time. But uh, oh, my but God, boy, it is possible to uh <laughs> to rinse these people up.
2: Uh, well, Something <laughs> about it. It's the guilt trip factor, isn't it? It is. You know, it, 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 it looms is. large because they know that they know their industry, because most of them are, most of them are in construction, and yeah,
1: their they, industry's
2: been, you know, exploiting labour for so many
1: years. <laughs> exactly, you got to pay it forward at some point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if people can make it to that Windsor race meeting as well next September, it'll be back on. It is a hell of a lot of fun. And uh, the auction just from the perspective of guilting people into uh, yeah. giving what they can. If I could do it here now on the podcast, I'd do yeah. it again. But when you think you about me, the things know. that we make time for and spend money on and the you know, the tenor that goes out of my account every month for the subscription to Audible or uh, Now TV that I yeah. barely watch and you go, that tenor <laughs> could just go to Ashling each month and just makes so much more of a difference. So maybe that's what I'll say to people today. But if there's a subscription in your account that you go, why am I still given that tenor, just take the moment now, stop the podcast and switch it over uh, as a direct debit to the Ashling project and know that these people and these trips will it will be creating those moments that Alex has just described and supporting their work uh, into the future. Alex McDonald, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to do it.
2: Thank you, Charlotte, And uh, thanks for all your contributions in the past. Didn't you Let's just say I'm not, I'm not surprised here in demand as an auctioneer. <laughs> 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 You're great at squeezing the pips out of those guys.
1: <laughs> we'll and We'll do it again in September, Alex. Thanks a lot. And I'll we see will. you very thanks. soon. So there you have it. It's our special Ashling return to Ireland charity episode of an Irishman abroad. As you can hear, my voice in a bit uh, unwell this week. So I hope that didn't disrupt your enjoyment of this episode. I tip my cap to Alex Macdonald and everybody that's worked for the Ashling Project over the last 28 years. It is extraordinary and it's so moving what they've done, and their work is still needed. They can't keep going without our support. So why not today make the effort to head over to Ashling, A-I-S-L-I-N-G org UK and click on the support us tab and give what you can. A little direct debit, maybe switch the Amazon Prime or Now TV over to them and watch, as Ardell said, the money make an impact right away. I'm Jarlath Regan. I'm your host of this show every single week. And I'm hoping to do a lot more of these kinds of episodes where we look at the Irish experience abroad a bit more. Every Tuesday, I'll be back with Sonia O'Sullivan. Of course, we'll have coverage of the Sonia Cove 10 on Tuesday. I'll be bringing you all the sights and sounds of that experience. Massive thanks to Alex McDonald, to Brian Connolly on sound, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible, and to you, our supporters over on Patreon.com. A bit like the Ashling Project, we can't keep going without those people. So if you're supporting our show now over on patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad, I really do appreciate that.